0: 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. If you do not have this verse memorized, I would recommend that you do that. And then take to heart the message of the Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always... To give an answer to everyone that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and with fear. There are a few things that I learned in Bible college that were driven home so well that they stuck, and I've remembered them easily ever since. Um, those were the things that were repeated, 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 and just drilled in until they're so ingrained that they become just a part of, you're almost a part of your body. One of those things is the scripture verse from Psalm 34:1. had a good uh, professor that, taught us, was encouraging us to maintain a good attitude and and be positive and, and not to be grumblers or complainers. And so he taught and spoke extensively on Psalm 34.1 that simply says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And he taught us to to say that to ourselves, and to change the emphasis around on different words, and and to say, I will bless the Lord at all times. I will bless the Lord at all times. I will bless the Lord at all times. And all of those, all of that repetition had just kind of settled in to where. Um, Every once in a while, still, when something happens that it seems like life isn't going our way, I will think of Psalm 34.1 and try to say, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Another one of those things that was taught to me in... uh, If I remember correctly, the class was called Christian Beliefs. In some colleges, it may be called something like Foundations of Faith or something like that, but they're just very basic, uh, fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. And I believe almost from the very first day, we were told in that class uh, that the reason we believe Christianity is true is, now does anybody want to take a stab at that? What is the reason we believe that Christianity is true? Yeah, resurrection. The reason we believe uh, that Christianity is true is because of the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The historical fact of the resurrection... Of Jesus Christ Peter here in his letter first Peter chapter 3 verse 15 tells us to be ready to be prepared to give an answer or to present an argument or a or a defense no one when, when we say argument that's not like being argumentative or or uh, you know sparring verbally sparring with someone it's not that it's to argue a case like a lawyer would in a in a court of law it's to present a defense and we are admonished as believers to be prepared to be ready and I would encourage you to ask yourself If someone were to ask you, why are you a Christian? Why do you believe what you do? Why do you live your life the way you do? Are you ready? Are you prepared? Do you have something in your library tucked away that you could pull out and say, well, yes, in fact, here's why I'm a Christian. Here's why I believe the things that I do. Well, I want to hopefully encourage you tonight. Hopefully, teach you something and uh, inspire you uh, to maybe study more and maybe give you some information that you had not uh, had before. I have shared, I've probably shared most of this material. You know, when you've been at a place nine years, um, I, I'm not sure what preachers do when they've been at a place 20, 30, 40 years. The, our pastor. Uh, In Ohio before we moved out there had been the pastor at that one church for about 40 years and uh, you know when you've been at a place after a certain amount of time you've said just about everything that you know and a lot of things that you made up and so that's I kind of feel like where we're getting to be so uh, the Lord is faithful though I'm glad he gave us an inexhaustible book aren't you amen we can never come to the end So, focusing especially on the resurrection of Christ and the reason that we believe Christianity is true, being the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how and why could we believe this? I want to present to you this evening the heart of the argument or the defense for believing in the literal bodily resurrection of jesus christ now this is an acronym and uh, each one of these letters stands for something so uh, first i'm going to tell you what i'm going to tell you then i'm going to tell you and then i'm going to tell you what i told you so here's what i'm going to tell you heart the defense or the argument that uh that demonstrates the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The H stands for a horrible death, that Jesus died, that He really died a horrible death. The E stands for the empty tomb. The A stands for appearances after the resurrection. The R stands for the record of the women as the first witnesses. And the T stands for the transformation of the disciples. If you take these five all together and you study them, you will find that collectively they present a pretty strong defense, a reason for us to believe in the literal historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's begin with the H, the horrible death of Jesus. Now, some of you, if you've read or looked into any of this, you may be aware that one of the the arguments that skeptics will make or have made in the past is called the swoon theory, which is, the Greek word for that is baloney. Um, But the swoon theory basically says that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Therefore, He didn't resurrect. He just You know, he just kind of passed out, and people maybe thought he was dead, but uh, once he was in the the tomb, the cool air uh, of the tomb and all of that, it kind of revived him, and he, he came back awake again. Well, that really does not hold up at all because the record of history tells us that Jesus really did die an actual physical death and it was a horrible death. It was a death that would have involved heavy loss of blood. We read in the scripture, almost in passing, that how Pilate had him scourged. And and, uh, it was not uncommon for men to die simply from the loss of blood that came as a result of the scourging. It was a terrible, terrible uh, punishment to go through. And uh, it, it, it was such that it was uh, both, both sides of the body, if I understand history correctly, the, the, uh, the wrists would be bound together and up above the head attached to a post so that all of the skin was stretched taut and tight there there were the whips that were used had multiple uh, lashes with heavy weights on the end and occasionally they would be drugged through some kind of sheep's blood or animal's blood and then run through uh, broken pieces of pottery or glass or something like that so there would just be extra uh, extra material to grab and bite into the flesh horrible horrible heavy loss of blood we also know from the record of scripture how when the soldier came around to pierce the side of Jesus that it says that blood and water flowed from his pierced side and this is an indication that what was actually pierced was into that uh, if if I'm remembering correctly the pericardial sac that area around the heart was actually punctured and 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 in a way, Jesus had a broken heart, almost literally. We also read from Scripture that His legs were not broken. Now, this is interesting because typically death by crucifixion took place actually through suffocating. The position that a crucified man would have to hold would be such that the weight, his entire the weight of his body would be held by the nails through the wrists and then the the nail through the feet. The feet placed one on top of the other. And it was in such a position that the pressure on the lungs and the torso made it to where you could not get a, a breath of air except for maybe a very shallow breath. And if if the if the man wanted a deep breath, breath of air, he was forced to push himself up on the nail through his feet until he could make enough room to get a breath, and then he would sag back down. And so, very commonly, when a man was crucified, in order to ensure the death of that man, those Roman soldiers, who, by the way, were experts at crucifixion, they had refined this uh, this uh, torturous act of of punishment uh, to a to an art until they knew exactly what they were doing. And there's no way that any man that a Roman soldier would have let any man survive a crucifixion. But commonly, if if they were to if they were tired of waiting, it wasn't common for men to hang on crosses sometimes for days at a time. If they were tired of waiting and they wanted those men to die quicker, they would simply come along with a mallet and break their knees, break their legs, so that they could no longer use their legs to push themselves up to get the breath of air. And Scripture tells us that Jesus' legs were not broken. Another interesting thing that we read from Scripture in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, is about the interaction of some of the, some of the uh, religious leaders when they came to ask for Jesus' body. In Mark chapter 15, verse 42, it says, When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead, and when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. So so you see, this idea that perhaps Jesus didn't really die on the cross just simply doesn't hold up. There's no good reason to believe it. He actually died a real physical death, a horrible death. Moving on to the E of our acronym. The E stands for the empty tomb. The empty tomb. If you'd like to follow along, you notice the Scripture in Matthew chapter 28, verse 11, says this. While they were going, behold, some of the guard, that is the guard who had been at the tomb of Jesus, they went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day, that is, to the day of the writing of the Gospel of Matthew. Now you notice what they did not try to say. It's interesting that no one has ever denied the reality of the empty tomb. No one ever tried to argue that the tomb was not empty. It was accepted as reality and truth from the very beginning, accepted by the guards. I mean, the guards knew it. They were the ones who had been there. Uh, As they told the religious leaders, the religious leaders said, well, you tell them that the disciples came, these untrained disciples, they came and overpowered you, the trained guards, and stole the body away. That's what you say. But they did not try to deny the reality of the empty tomb. You see, Christianity, and this is another uh, another evidence uh, that we could make, another argument that we could make, that Christianity would not have originated in Jerusalem shortly after the resurrection if there had not been an empty tomb. You see, Christianity, the, the movement of Jesus' followers grew and flourished tremendously, powerfully within about 50 days or so of, of uh, Jesus' death and resurrection until thousands were being added to the church, and it was growing. Now, the, the religious leaders, they tried to f- push against it. They tried to keep the church down. The Jesus followers tried to keep them quiet, but one of the things that they never tried to do was to say, well, let's just go and see the body of Jesus and we'll put a stop to all this. But they never did that. Another evidence that we could point out is the, the other explanations for the empty tomb just simply do not hold up. Um, the explanation that the religious leaders told the guards, the chief priests, they told the guards to say, well, the disciples, the disciples stole the body. You know, if the, if the disciples stole the body, for one, that means, as I mentioned a moment ago, that these untrained fishermen mostly uh, overpowered these professionally trained Roman guards. Not very likely. It also means that most of those disciples ended up giving up their lives for something they knew to be a lie. Because you see, all of G, almost all of Jesus' followers ended up dying a martyr's death, some of them a very horrible death, similar to the way Jesus himself died. And if they had stolen the body, then they would have known that Jesus really wasn't the Savior of the world who he claimed to be. Now, there have been people who have died for things that they believed to be true, but were not. But nobody in their right mind would ever die for something they knew to be a lie. Another possible explanation is that the authorities removed the body. Again, I kind of mentioned this uh, in passing a moment ago. If the authorities, either the Roman authorities or the Jewish religious leaders, if they had taken the body, then they would have been quick to produce it for everyone to see in order to disprove what the apostles were preaching and teaching. When Peter and John and the other disciples, when they were preaching in the temple and, and uh, talking about Jesus and 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 really almost pointing a finger in their faces and saying, this Jesus whom you crucified is now risen again. They would have been quick to put a stop to that because they didn't want their work to continue, but they never did produce the body. Again, another possible explanation for the empty tomb is the swoon theory that I mentioned a few moments ago, uh, which, as we said, doesn't really make sense because the Romans were professional uh, at their jobs. They knew exactly what they were doing, and the prob- the other problem with this is if Jesus really didn't die on the cross, but somehow survived crucifixion and the cool air of the tomb revived him, he what kind of condition would he have been in? He would have been in an extremely weakened state, a a wasted and ruined man who needed a doctor and lots of time to heal. Not in any sense the kind of leader who could convince his followers that he was the Lord of life and victor over death. He would not have inspired a following at all. So we have the horrible death of Jesus, that he actually died. We have the evidence of the empty tomb. We also have the appearances after the resurrection. The appearances after the resurrection. The best statement of this is found in Paul's writings in First Corinthians chapter fifteen. First Corinthians chapter fifteen and verses three through eight. Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that according to Jewish law, it required at least two witnesses to establish truth, valid truth in a court of law. Well, Paul here is saying if you want to establish the veracity of the claims of Christ, that he really died and rose again, then there's plenty of people that you can talk to. And he goes through the list. He talks about Uh, Cephas or Peter. He talks about the twelve. He talks about an occasion where Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time. They all saw him. They all saw him. Now, this list is believed to be dated at around A.D. 55, which is only about 20 to 25 years after the resurrection. This addresses another, uh, another possible argument that skeptics might make. Uh, some will say, well, the, the resurrection of Christ and all of this that took place, that was, those were stories that developed and built up over hundreds of years of time, and, and as the story got told, you know, it was like a fish story. That the fish was this big, and then it was this big, and it just kind of kept growing. And that's what they many believe about Jesus and his, his resurrection, that it was just a legend, a myth. But historians tell us, people who study such things, is that the, the earlier the evidence is dated, the less time there is for legend and myth to develop. And this being only 20 to 25 years after the resurrection is not nearly enough time for for myth or legend to grow. And in fact, Paul himself points out that though a few of those witnesses have fallen asleep, meaning they've passed away and you can't talk to them, he says there are still plenty who are alive that you can go talk to yourself that saw Jesus after his resurrection we read the gospel records and, and the gospel records tell us about others uh, who saw Jesus after his resurrection. One example being the disciples on the Emmaus Road that we read about in Luke chapter 22. Those men who, who were walking along and so disheartened and discouraged over the death of Christ until Christ appeared and walked with them though they could not recognize him. And later on, after they'd walked together, they came to their destination and they broke bread with Jesus. There was something about, the I believe, something about the way Jesus blessed the the breaking of the bread and shared with them that it triggered something in their mind. And then Jesus disappeared, and they realized who it was. And they said, Did not our hearts burn within us as He walked with us by the way and He opened to us the Scriptures? And they knew that was Jesus. And they went right back to Jerusalem and said, We have seen the Lord, He's alive. Well, not only do we have these appearances after the resurrection, but we also have the record of the women as the first witnesses. I'm not going to spend too much time here, but uh, just to mention, this is one, it's recorded by all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of the biographies of Jesus uh, uh, tell that the women were the first ones on the scene to witness the empty tomb and the resurrection of Christ. And the reason this is significant is that a woman was not considered a, a legal witness. Her testimony in a court of law was, was not considered to be valid or legitimate. And so, if that's the case, then that does not support a made-up or a fabricated story. Because, you see, if the disciples had been making up this story, they would have made up more credible witnesses. If it was a made-up story, then they made up bad witnesses, witnesses whose testimony was not considered valid. Finally, we have the evidence of the transformation of the disciples. And this is perhaps the most powerful as we read the stories about the apostles and how their lives were changed. You know, we have Peter, that one that we read about and who seems to attract so much criticism in some ways. You know, Peter was that impetuous follower of Christ who was always so quick to speak out and so quick to stand up for what he believed was right but then when the pressure came and settled down he was not able to stand up for the truth and stand up for right just a, a a young servant girl the pressure of a servant girl in the courtyard of the high priest was enough to cause him to deny jesus 3 times and to say with an oath i don't know him and make you wonder if there was ever any hope for peter and i'm so thankful that peter shed tears and wept bitterly and found his way uh, to, to repentance, and back into right relationship with Jesus Christ. And then we read how this same man who once uh, acted under pressure as a coward, uh, the same man on the day of Pentecost went out and preached powerfully under the power of the Holy Spirit, and thousands were saved through his testimony. He boldly preached Christ, crucified and risen. And then Peter himself, history tells us, was crucified. And because he felt unworthy to die in a manner so similar to Christ, he requested to be crucified upside down. Is that right? I think that's right. Yeah. Peter. Then there are James and Jude. These are men who... We believe we were half brothers of Jesus. All of Jesus' family seems to have been skeptical of him during his earthly ministry. In fact, if you go to Mark chapter 3 and verse 21, we read this When his family heard what he was doing, his family heard what Jesus was doing, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. You know, that poor Jesus, he doesn't know what he's doing. He must not realize what he's saying. We need to take him home. Let's go take him home and take care of him. They thought he was crazy. They thought he was out of his mind. They they probably those brothers despised him. Now, I don't know. It, it's kind of funny to think about. I've heard others suggest this to be a half-brother of Jesus, or to grow up in the same family. And I can imagine hearing, why can't you be more like Jesus? Um, It'd be enough to sour you on on your sibling, I'm sure. But something caused them to change their mind. Jude, in his writing, would not even identify himself as a brother of Jesus. He called himself the servant of Jesus. James became the leader of the Jerusalem church, those who were Christ followers. Something very dramatic caused them to completely change their mind about who Jesus was. And I believe that was the resurrection of Jesus, after seeing him die, knowing that he was dead, and then seeing him come to life again. Again, if I could reference the passage from 1 Corinthians 15, the last person of the disciples just that I'll mention here is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul calls himself uh, one untimely born, and yet he identifies himself as an apostle, one who actually saw the resurrected and glorified Jesus. And it transformed his life. Paul was one of those guys who knew he was right. He knew he was right. He, he was so convinced he was right that he was going about persecuting the Christians, those who were followers of the way, as the Bible tells us. And on the Damascus road, he was stricken down and blinded by a light from heaven and had that dramatic encounter with Jesus. And he said, well, what? What shall I do? He had a dramatic conversion, and he went from being the the persecutor of the church, the persecutor of the Christians, to probably the most powerful missionary and evangelist that the church has ever known. A dramatic, powerful change in his life. So if you can remember, friends, this is the heart of the argument or the defense the reason to believe in the resurrection of jesus christ that he really died a horrible death that there actually is an empty tomb he appeared to people not just in some spirit form or vision but a bodily physical appearance scripture supports that as well the the women were recorded in scripture as those who were the first to witness His resurrection. And then we have the transformation of disciples. It's wonderful to have our faith strengthened, isn't it? I, this, this kind of thing, I, it may not appeal to you. I don't know if it doesn't. I hope you can, can bear with it every once in a while, but it's one of my favorite uh, areas of study and uh, one of my favorite topics, the area of apologetics. I enjoy studying it. It strengthens my faith. It builds my confidence. But more than that, it's, it is good to know we have reason to believe, but the best of all, friends, is when we meet the risen Jesus for ourselves. And we know that He is a living reality in our own heart and life. Not just what He can do, but to know that He has transformed and changed my life. And faith in Him still results in a changed life. Amen. Let's stand together, please. There may be one that you are praying for or thinking of that are skeptical about this whole Christianity thing, the Bible, uh, did Jesus really live and die and rise again? Maybe there's somebody like that. I I want us just simply to join together and close in prayer just for a few moments. Pray for those that we know need Jesus.